This year uh, hey. is. Did, did I ever do an intro for this, Chris? Did I ever figure one out? I don't think I. I think you're you're doing it now. I'm doing it right now. Uh, <laughs> this is the uh, Comics Talk episode ten, the second exclusive episode of Comics Talk for the month month of March. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, a lot of times we do this and we end up uh, saying things we wouldn't say in the air. You know, kind of. Complaining about comics that we wouldn't say yes. on the regular Cosmic Treadmill show. And that's kind of what this is for. But also we want to be uh, positive over here and, and explain that we do like comics. We're not just uh, <laughs> <laughs> down on them all the time. So uh, we picked a few co- a few a piece of uh, moments in comics that we love, even though they could be called kind of silly. And I want to just say uh, a lot of times people will talk about something in comics and they'll say, well, that's comic books, and, and that's not unfair sure. to say, but I've always kind of bristled at that because a good story is going to be a good story, you know, whether it's in a comic book, whether it's written on a, you know, prose. Uh, but there are certain things that work in comics that just really would not work in any other format. <laughs> so it, it, there's some more to it. I think, I think this includes uh, some instances like that. Absolutely, and uh, this will probably be like part one of a series because we uh, oh, yeah. we like we like silly things, so uh, mm-hmm. we'll probably be revisiting the subject time and again. Um, <laughs> now, uh, first thing we want to do is thank everybody, of course. Thanks, everyone. Uh, make sure that uh, you know we're here and uh, we ain't going anywhere, so we'll, we'll keep doing these shows. Um, now, the first book we want to discuss is actually, you know, a, a silly book that is one of my very favorite single issues of a comic book ever put to paper. Cool. And that is Tales of the Teen Titans number 55, July 1985 cover date. It is called Shades of Grey. It's written by Marv Wolfman with art by Ron Randall. And in it, uh, Gar Logan, uh, you know, Beast Boy, and Deathstroke, they well, they talk about statutory rape over breakfast. Uh, <laughs> now, as you know, uh, we've done the Judas contract before. I think a lot of the, the folks listening know about the Judas contract. Tara came in, infiltrated the team. She was a double agent, yada, yada, yada. Now, uh, in the wake of that, you know, Deathstroke, he took a step too far, was actually put on trial. The trial ran over several issues, and during it, Beast Boy made quite a spectacle of himself, mm-hmm. and he kind of uh, he kind of dinged the reputation of the Teen Titans, who were like the prime witnesses to, uh, to Deathstroke's trespasses, basically. And so Deathstroke received a very light sentence in you know one of them country club prisons we hear about, where it's basically club med. With yeah, farms. you got your uh, own, you got a nice bed, your own cable in sure. your room. It's a good time. <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a bubble pool. We're all good. But it, but it basically uh, happened be, uh, partly because of Gar's outbursts because he yeah. made the trial go he down. Turned it into a circus. Yeah, yeah. and uh, Gar did this on purpose because he wanted Slade to be accessible. He didn't want him to be in a high security prison or a maximum security prison. He wanted him out in the open because. He was planning on killing him, so he wanted to be able to get to him. Uh, And, you know, it finally gets to a point where they are face-to-face, and it turns out Gar can't kill him. He is just about to, and and Slade is standing there going, do it, do it, please do it, and Gar can't do it. 
and he slumps to the ground and Deathstroke is uh he puts his hand on his shoulder and he's like, Hey, how about we go for some coffee? Which the first time I read this mm. I was just like, What? There's yeah. no way. There's no there's no way I'm gonna turn the page and they're gonna be in a Denny's. Sure enough. <laughs> they are pretty much. Sure enough. Yeah. You turn the page and they're in a Denny's and uh and you know, guards ordering, you know, like hash browns and a diet coke. I'm like, what am I reading? <laughs> it's just so insane. And they have themselves this really awesome heart to heart. And uh and it's something that you just it's just so outlandish because you know, Gar actually he he actually asked the question that all the fans wanted answered, but were afraid to ask. I think. Mm-hmm. You know, he, Death Slade is telling the story of Terra. He's saying that Terra is, he's like he she's the only person I ever worked with that I was scared of. You right. know, because this is back before they really messed her up. Um, and Gar asks, "Hey, did you ever sleep with her?" And there's a, a little moment of silence, and Slade comes back with. Would it matter if I did? Mm-hmm. And it's like, what the hell am I? You know, oh, no, we don't kiss and tell in my business. <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, you know that basically tells you everything you need to know right there. Right? It, it's it's actually a somewhat of a touching scene, and uh, is. this is one of those things. You know, since Marv Wolfman wrote Slade Wilson, I don't feel anyone has ever gotten this part of him right. That he really is a paternalistic figure. It really is yeah. not personal. Uh, no, certainly not. And, no, it's all a contract. And, yeah. and and after the contract, though, he really is kind of a family man, you know. Like that. Yep. The, the thing is, like now they have him where he's, you know, it'll be nothing personal, but he's a jerk all the time. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, it, the way he was written back then, and this isn't the only. This is probably the best scene to to display that kind of relationship sure. between him and the Titans. But that wasn't the only one. That's sort of how they operated the whole time. You know, uh, mm-hmm. it was just a, it was a, it was a gig for him, and uh, he just felt like he had to finish it and. Took no pleasure in it, so th- this is a, a really awesome scene, uh, and definitely wouldn't work because Beast Boy is green, so that would be f- that would be something you'd have to explain in just a, in a singular movie scene. But uh. but it's just like the whole thing because like as far as the Titans know, D- Deathstroke wants them dead. Right. That's his whole his whole focus there because like you mentioned, he is a very paternalistic figure. He's finishing his son's contract. Yeah, yeah. His son, the the original Ravager, he was uh, imbued with this stuff by the Hive, and that wound up killing him. And but he took a contract to kill the Titans, and his father was kind of honor bound mm-hmm. to follow up and complete it. So as far as the Titans know, he doesn't care what what happens as long as they're dead. And uh, here we have him asking Beast Boy, "Hey, you want to go for coffee?" Yeah. I, it's it's a great it's a great character building scene for both of them. It is. Um, yeah. Was this one of your first that you read of the, of Titans when you got into? No, it no. Because um, you know, when I got into Titans was probably mid to late nineties, and what little research I did, um, the internet wasn't as wide and varied a place back then. Right. So, I was of the mind that all of the tales of the Teen Titans were were reprints. Uh, where only only like the last half of them were because yeah. of the uh, whole Baxter, the hardcore cover, soft cover thing. Mm. But I was uh, led to believe that everything with Tales of the Teen Titans in the in the title was a reprint. Oh, so I didn't think I had to read those. So you because avoided, like, oh, I already read them. that. Yeah, I get you. Yeah, it's like I, I I picked them up if I saw them on the cheap, but never really made it a point to read them because I thought that they were things that I had already read. Yeah. So I just filed them away, and then uh, one day I was just flipping through. 
And uh, I realized that the Judas contract was a Tales of the Teen Titans annual. And so I realized, oh, these aren't just reprints. Yeah, they got to be <laughs> so, new. Wait a second, you know. Yeah. So I had to go. I started going through, and I made it to this one, and it just blew my mind because it's just so out of left field that uh, that they would have such a touching heart to heart conversation when, up to that point, I mean, it was all about vendettas and. Uh, yeah, the Titans thought Deathstroke wanted him dead, and Deathstroke knew Beast Boy wanted him dead. Yeah. So it's just such a such a, a zig when I was expecting a zag, and uh, it's really stuck with me ever since. You know what would have made it even more hilarious would be if uh, <laughs> Slade was wearing his costume the whole time. That would have been they're oh, both God, both sitting in the diner in costume. <laughs> like he's got it. He's got the, the 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 bottom of it pulled up over exactly. his nose so he, yeah, so he could eat. He could eat his <laughs> eggs or whatever. That would have been that would have been funny. Uh, did did we not? Cover that on the show one time or no? We just talked about we it. Rushed against it. I think we, we did talk- the Judas contract, yeah. but we never did a long form on it, and we probably will eventually. Yeah, that'd be cool. But uh, yeah, that is such a such a fun issue. Just such a, a wonderful issue. The, yeah, I, I like the Ron the Ron uh, Randall art on it, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, of course, if it were Perez. It would be, uh, it would probably be on everybody's list of top issues for Titans because I think I even read somewhere that it's Marv Wolfman's favorite issue. Oh, really? Of Titans. So, yeah, I think that the, I think it deserves a lot more, a lot more recognition and play than it gets. Did Romeo Thangal ink it? Do you know? Or I couldn't tell you off the top of my I'm head. I, I would assume so. I've just started reading the uh, uh, a bunch of post-crisis uh, Titans that I hadn't read that post Perez, you know. Yeah, um, they just collected like a whole bunch that were never collected before in this in a format, and I'm reading them, and uh, they got a bunch of guys drawing now. Like, oh, I don't know, one was Ed Hannigan, I think, and mm-hmm. uh, Eduardo and I, Barreto. Eduardo Barreto, and, but it all looks pretty good, and I think I think uh, Thangal helps to keep a more of a uniform look throughout this series. Uh, anyway. yeah, this was actually uh, Ron Randall was just credited as artist, so he probably oh, did probably did it all himself. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> he definitely is, has the chops for it. Certainly. Well, my first one I'm going to introduce should be no surprise to many of you. It is from the Silver Age Doom Patrol, number 116, December 1967, cover date by Arnold Drake and Bruno Permiani. But it really is one panel in this entire thing that, to me, is everything about the Silver Age Doom Patrol. Uh, See, a lot of of people have misunderstandings, I think, about the Silver Age Doom Patrol. They know about Animal, Vegetable, Mineral Man. They know about, you know, Monster Mala on the Brain. But a lot of it was really a sitcom, uh, a wacky sitcom that Arnold Drake was writing. Uh, throughout the series, Elastigirl, like, marries Mento. They have, like, marital problems because he keep, she keeps wanting to go out and hero. They adopt Beast Boy. That's, you know, that's the connection <laughs> there. And that they, they have, like, a, a kind of a My Three Sons thing going on or whatever. A Leave it to Beaver scenario going on. Uh, plus, there's like you know, Niles is sweet on Elastigirl sometimes, and yep. there's other drama in there. So th- that was Drake's version of trying to create a Marvel comic, but he really ended up. And creating... they played it straight too. He does. He, he plays it all straight, uh, including yeah. even the wacky stuff like Animal Vegetable Mineral Man. That that's and Bruno Premiati is kind of like very uh, realistic, isn't the word, but very like you know hard and you you could tell what he's drawing. For sure, uh, for sure. It, it, it really it kind of created, the, it made it even more surreal because it's almost like you could almost see it as a show, as a television As a show, show. yep. Um, so, you know, th- this is what I really like about it. And it just, there are all these, like, 
weird little ba- stories running in the background while they're traveling around the world to stop, uh, you know, the brain or whatever. Uh, in, in this issue in particular, number 116, <clears throat> in this one, uh, a reformed Madame Rouge, she had reformed the previous issue, and we're not sure that she's really on the up and up, but she uh, helps the Doom Patrol defeat an evil space mutant that turns out to be the chief in disguise. But that's not even the weird part of the book to me. My favorite moment has to do with, uh, they're on like, uh, they're in the Alps for some reason, or I forget exactly, they're in Tibet maybe, uh, and Mento and Beast Boy, father and son, are uh, tracking the abominable, abominable snowman. And while they are, they're also kind of arguing with each other. They're having typical teenage uh, parent problems. Uh, they Eventually, they come upon the abominable snowman, snowman's sleeping body. And on closer inspection, the Yeti is wearing a button with Alfred E. Newman on it that says, What me worry? <laughs> Why? There's no explanation. They say nothing. Nope. They're just sort of like, oh, here's the Yeti. And then I think he wakes up and he chases him. Uh, he must have been a Mad Magazine subscriber, I guess. But that's just like one of these yeah. little things in Doom Patrol that just throws the whole thing for a loop. And I think indicates uh, really the hallmark of, the, of that Silver Age series is like that just any stupid little thing could happen that they're just having a good time with it. Uh, and it's, it, sometimes it amazes me uh, that Mort Weisinger was the editor for this. Uh, yeah, supposedly like the meanest editor Rigid. in DC. Yeah, but I guess he liked this kind of stuff for whatever reason. He, he didn't stop <laughs> Arnold Drake from slipping a different company's uh, mascot into the uh, into the proceedings. So this is something wow. that always sticks out to me in my mind. Yes, you told me about that, and I had missed it. I, I don't know if I just hadn't read that issue yet, and I ran to my uh, showcase. Yeah. And sure enough, it's yeah, just he's right wearing, there. He's wearing an Alfred E. Newman pin. Alfred E. Newman pin. It's like what? <laughs> and I mean, this also would have been the like a height of comic of uh, Mad Magazine's popularity too. So, sure, people knew what that was for sure. Yeah, this wasn't a, a riddle. <laughs> it was yeah. uh, everybody knew what that was. Um, but uh, speaking of a riddle, oh. uh, we'll go to my second pick here, which uh, is actually it inspired a, an entire episode of the Cosmic Treadmill, which is available right now. That's right. This is Flash number two sixty eight from December nineteen seventy eight. It's called The Riddle of the Runaway Comic by Carrie Bates and Irv Novick. And in it, Barry Allen's preteen neighbor notices that his copy of Flash Comics number 26 from 1942 has gone missing. And um, the funny and interesting thing about this uh, and what separates it a little bit from other comics of the day is that a lot of the the collector's parlance is brought into this. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, the kid refers to it as a rare collector's issue, you know, which... You know, I don't know that was a much of a thing back in 1978, uh, in comics anyway. Uh, he even, like, remarks that it's from the Golden Age and says that it even grades it in good condition, which is, you know, growing up in the speculator age, stuff that I'm familiar with, but I, it's it's eye-opening. Uh, it goes way that, back, yeah. Okay, yeah, dude. to see that this was in the gestalt in the 70s when, sure. you know, when comics history, like, he even mentions... This book from 1942 as being 35 years old, which, I mean, today, that's 1984, 1985, mm-hmm. which doesn't seem like something that's out of the realm of possibilities of getting. Because, I mean, we go to the quarter bins and dollar bins all the time, and there's early 80s, there's late 70s sure, books sure. in there. But, so, like, by, imagine... but by then, the jig was up, you see. People were <laughs> yes. already collecting them as they came out. <laughs> yes. So it's like thinking about that, that length of time only being what separates from this rare collector's issue till him losing the rare collector's issue. It's, yeah. it's very eye-opening. And 
it's funny here because like Barry's like, oh, th- that sucks. Hey, you want to help me sort my comics? <laughs> it's just it's funny. Hilarious. It's funny because you know the Flash Barry Allen picked his name and everything because he's a comics Based on fan. A comic. yep. But it, and it, it's something that they address throughout. But like they don't really make a big deal. But he's a comic collector. You know what I mean? Like he, yep. he loves comics and and that's part of his character. Yeah, and we don't really see him with the long boxes, uh, you know, anymore. Uh, no, I'm not, no, not sure. Now. I don't know. And I'm not sure if we even saw them saw him with that many outside of this issue. I mean, just knowing that he was a comic collector, but here we actually have him sorting comics, yeah. which is pretty wild. And uh, you know, we find out that the book that the kid is missing is actually in Barry's collection, and it's somehow you know found its way there. And the kid knows it's his because he folded the corner of the damn issue, mm-hmm. so uh, ruining its good condition, of course. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> Barry knows it isn't his, and because uh, he's always coveted this issue, uh, which actually figures into the story. And uh, the issue winds up vanishing. It winds up at a comic convention, so we actually have Flash attending a comic convention. Yeah. Which. You know, uh, Suling's conventions were only a couple years old at this point. Uh, about 10, you know, but yeah, it, it, this well, when, when, a when was the first one, like 70, 75, 74? Oh, Suling, that's true. Suling's first one would have been, like, yes, about mid, maybe 74, even 75. But, yeah, so you know, the first comic convention years, going yeah. back to, like, the early uh, Roy Thomas and oh, Bill Shelley are, yeah. would have been, like, 64. But you're right, like, sure. as far as becoming an official vendor yeah. arranged type thing, yeah, it would, it would have been only a few years. Yeah, but uh, it's just seeing Barry Allen go to a comic convention. I, I almost wish we got more pages of him walking around a Comic-Con mm. just to, <laughs> to see what he would want. But, of course, he wants this issue of Flash that the kid is missing. And it's just it, – it goes uh, – it goes kind of wonky there because you have like a, a couple of guys in Golden Age cosplay come in, an Alan Scott and a Wildcat, and they want the comic. We ultimately find out that the comic's been treated with a telepathic teleportation serum, <laughs> oh. which uh, which the underworld <laughs> is trying to get its hands on so they can reverse engineer it and make more of this serum so they can steal paintings and jewels and Fort Knox. But, <laughs> but I mean... It, <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? It's wild. It's wild. But like this, this uh, Comic Con here, the first annual Central City Comic Con. I mean, it has a theme. Yeah. And it's heroes of the Golden Age. So there are people dressed as uh, as Golden Age heroes, like we mentioned. But Barry, when he has to deal with these guys, he changes into his Flash costume, and a couple of kids make fun of him because he's he's wearing a silver he's or he's wearing costume, a, you know. He's wearing a the wrong Flash costume. Which is totally Which what is... someone would say at a convention right away. Ah, <laughs> uh, excuse me, you have the wrong costume for the convention. <laughs> Your lightning bolt's going the wrong way. Exactly. <laughs> that is not a period correct costume, sir. Uh, yeah, it, it's it really is cool to see this. Uh, it's just an acknowledgement of of a culture. You know what I mean? Uh, exactly. The pages that create that culture, which sort of is what Flash is about. If you think about it, you know, it's it's always recursively sure. kind of like folding it in itself. You know, that that created Earth Two and the multiverse and uh, started made... the Silver Age. Exactly, but started yeah. the Silver Age. That's that's sort of like uh, Flash always does, uh, you know, vibrate between worlds, as they the say. The meta sort of, yeah. Uh, 
I love I love the scene where the kids are are talking about doing the trades. These issues, yep. th- three years is an all star for one of more, more fun. It's like wow. if you were to go to a convention today, all of the all star and more fun comics, if they're there, <laughs> are slammed behind the counter, and the price oh, yeah. points are listed and not and for haggling. At least, yeah, there will be no trading uh, going on for those comics, <laughs> my friends. Except and, the and trading of greed paper for a comic. That's it. And, and it's like the the trade was like very specific. Yeah. Like uh, so, I wonder if that was like. Because, like, all these guys knew each other, and they were all in the uh, the early fandom, the early organized fandom. Like, I'm wondering if, like, this was a trade that someone had discussed, you know? Like, did somebody try to trade three All-Stars for a more fun? Or... I, I, you know, I bet something like that happened. I, what, Overstreet, Bob Overstreet's guy started this year, <laughs> I think, 78. Oh, wow, yeah. I believe. Uh, I mean, Interesting. By, by this point, there was a robust... Uh, not maybe not as big as it would get, obviously, but there was a scene of people buying back issues. That's back you know, issue that's, market, yeah. That's what the direct market was really all about was was to make sure they had these back issues, and that's why we could always find comments <laughs> from the '80s. Uh, you know, like that all kind of feeds into it. But uh, it's this acknowledgement of it really is it's it's very uh, heartening. Uh, not to mention the story is so unbelievably stupid. So weird, yeah. Uh, mm. <laughs> you know, it just really tickles me to no end. <laughs> Uh, I mentioned it's one of those mysteries that uh, yeah. we get no breadcrumbs for. Like, <laughs> they, they oh, ta da! <laughs> can you solve the the riddle? No, there's no way you can possibly solve the riddle. It's it's, just, it's impossible. It, it involves a totally a, a serum introduced like late in the story. Yep. So uh, yeah, that 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 was real fun and definitely uh, you probably you might have listened to the episode by now, but we had a lot of fun reading that one. It was that it was, was a good one. Yeah. Now. Uh, <laughs> Everyone knows and loves the Dark Phoenix saga, right? The uh, hmm. the Jean Grey becomes uh, the Phoenix and the Dark Phoenix, and that ran in, in Uncanny X Men number one twenty nine to one thirty eight, January to October nineteen eighty. Cover dates written by Chris Claremont, drawn by John Byrne. But I have always loved how they brought Jean Grey back. This mm-hmm. is a comic story that began with Fantastic Four two eighty six, January nineteen eighty six. Cover date by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. But as we know, Chris, the story really goes back a lot further than that. This is one of the got to be one of the longest form Marvel stories, right? I mean, if you really <laughs> yeah. take it back to the beginning. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. And we actually kind of went over the story at least a couple of times, right? Uh, especially considering we never actually read these issues. <laughs> yeah, not on the show, not on the show. But we've talked about. It, I know a couple of times. Uh, one time was in the Cosmic Tribunal seventy one. That was Star Brand, where we did a whole thing on Jim Shooter. Because yeah. uh, he factored into this, we're not going to mention that part of it because it's not important to why I like the thing. But uh, so the way the way it all starts uh, after Jean Grey, who is Dark Phoenix, destroys a planet consuming its sun. Uh, Dark Phoenix dies oh, by edict of editor in chief Jim Shooter in X Men number one thirty seven by Claremont and Byrne. Shooter was quoted as saying she would never come back unless she could somehow be absolved of her atrocities. Murdering a planet, apparently that's yeah. you don't come back from that. No. So then, uh, college student and Marvel Comics fan Kurt Busiek came up with just such an idea with a couple of friends, which he then told Roger Stern, who then told John Byrne, who gave the idea of his stamp of approval, but nothing more was done about it because this just wasn't happening at the time uh, until 1985, when Jim Shooter wanted to publish an X-Men comic featuring the original time, uh, which would. Come to be known as the original team, which would come to be known as X Factor, that comic. And that's necessitated bringing Gene Gray back to the world. So 
The idea to absolve Jean Grey of her sins uh, that Kurt Busiek and others came up with was to make Phoenix and Jean Grey different entities. And Jean Grey was in suspended animation in that space shuttle at the bottom of Jamaica Bay that originally Dark Phoenix Phoenix emerged from. Uh, She's been down there all along, and Dark Phoenix was an entity just merely assumed her likeness because I guess she thought Jean Grey was good-looking, or really, because (laughs) the first thing she she touched. Uh, Yeah, I I, I didn't put it here, but Jean Grey becomes Phoenix when they're in a space shuttle. They get hit with cosmic rays. They crash. She comes out as Phoenix. Yeah, it's an iconic uh, panel where, like, yes. Cyclops and Storm are kind of bobbing in the water, like, Cyclops' mouth is full of water, and then out from Jamaica Bay bursts Jean as Phoenix. Just, uh, and this is the green green outfit. She's not right. yet dark. Yeah. The original Phoenix one. And, like, yeah. suddenly, suddenly she had, like, cool powers. It was, like, being nothing uh, from being kind of boring as hell. <laughs> yeah, it's like her powers were, like, turned up to 11. Yeah, just it was just blast. very, very yeah, amped. Do a lot yeah. of everything. Uh, to me, the solution, though, it's it's elegant because it works, and it's just hmm. so stupid. You know what I mean? Like, it's yep. like <laughs> the idea that Jean Grey is just snoozing away for years under uh, in Jamaica Bay while the X-Men <laughs> had some of their craziest adventures. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. she's just like, like I, I almost wish they could, like, you know, we could retcon it. And, like, and meanwhile, beneath Jamaica Bay, Jean Grey's just sleeping. You know? They, they, they might have retconned it by now. Who knows? That's true. They might. We, we might be able to find uh, seeds of her <laughs> napping, uh, including in there the Resurrection of Storm and, of course, that whole Madeline Pryor story arc that I never liked. I thought that was so, so uh, cornball. It was just, like, the, the typical bait-and-switch thing. I might even get into it. Uh, but, yeah, it's, you know, it's you, you would never see... Something like this in a Sherlock Holmes story, you'll never see something like no. this. Uh, you know, Moriarty would come back, but he it not because he was <laughs> cocooned yeah, under he the wasn't water a for, yeah. for like five years, uh, <laughs> or even you know, I don't know how long in comic book time. Makes me wonder: is cocooning anything like fridging? I don't think so. I think it's no, the, no, it's, no. It's almost like a reverse fridging. It, it is, right? It's yeah. like a rebirth. You come back Beautiful. from that. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I don't think it. Kyle's girlfriend's come back yet. Maybe she was a Black Lantern. I don't know. Maybe. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's a that's a fun story. I I, I actually talked to Kurt Busiek about that a couple of years ago oh, yeah. at, uh, at the Phoenix Con, and uh, he went through the whole thing with me. And uh, I actually have that recorded somewhere. We probably could upload that eventually. I believe so. That was uh, yeah. see in the eighties, right? You did that yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I I, I, I used a uh, my I used a recorder to record that so I could transcribe it. So I got that somewhere. Hey. And it's, a, it's a very interesting story. And uh, he goes through, uh, he goes through how he got his, he got the John Byrne pay for that uh, story because oh, yeah. uh, John Byrne was the top of the food chain there. And since he gave the story to Byrne, it was, it was, it was kind of wonky, but it was, it was interesting to hear. Interesting. It was very, very cool. Very, very, yeah. very weird. The uh, the finances of it. I always wonder how you cut that up, but yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> now uh, another another one we're going to talk about is uh, it's a funny one here. It's a uh, Detective Comics issue five six seven from October nineteen eighty six cover. This is a story called The Night of Thanks but No Thanks, and it's written by Holland Ellison, the uh, sci-fi writer, with art by Gene Colan. Now this is notable for being the final pre-crisis issue of Detective Comics, and it was also the last one edited by Len Wein. Uh, Denny O'Neill would take over, of course, and. Uh, we learn that this is an issue that Harlan Ellison had promised Lean he'd, uh, Len Wein he'd write back in 1971. Oh, right. So, uh, got around to it eventually. Fifteen years later. <laughs> yeah, that's all. And the whole thing, it's a bit of a gag issue. You know, a lot of these late crisis, late pre-crisis issues, 
it's like people were just like getting there, getting their jollies, having silly stories. Yeah, you know, it's like you had like this well, the Bat- action comics in Asterix story. Batman you know? was ge- was generally more fun uh, before Crisis. Sure. It, it oh, really, yeah, I mean, I'm gonna Miller, yeah. I'm gonna chalk it up to you know DKR Dark Knight Returns brought yeah. in the eternally the angry stern guy, but <laughs> before that, he he would sometimes smile, even crack a little joke. So. Yeah, so this issue, you have Batman, it's one night, and he's walking around Gotham City, and he's looking for something to do, and he's just not needed. Like, he sees somebody robbing a store, and before he can get there, the cops have him arrested. And the cop's like, hey, Batman, would you mind calling this into the station? Like, and yeah, Batman, the... <laughs> he's like, he goes over to the police box. He's like, razzum, frazzum. <laughs> yeah, that's Batman. And this happens like two or three times. And like, he goes back to the police box and he's like, yeah, it's me again. It's just funny stuff. And, uh, and like, there's like a drug bust and Batman like swoops in to arrest the guy, but it winds up that he blows the bust. Yeah. And like. The cop's like, well, we wanted to get his connection, to get his connection, to get his cutter. And uh, Batman's like, whoops, sorry. It's, you know, it's something in, in the modern Batman also they always depict. And again, this I think goes back, I would say, to DKR, definitely to mm. Batman year one. Uh, Gotham as a corrupt, ineffectual, useless city. In the, you know, sure. without Batman, yeah. it would totally fall apart. He's holding it together by, like, its strings. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's not always the way it was, you know. But Batman, at one time, don't forget, was a deputized member of the of the Gotham City Police Force. So it's true. Uh, they, yeah. uh, they they worked well back then. But even even pre crisis, they don't depict the cops as bumbling idiots that need you know Batman to do the most basic thing for them. Uh, they are actually detectives, and you know what I mean. Yeah, uh, I. I... I know that that, that that there was a uh, the loosening of the comics code really facilitated making the cops look corrupt and, yes. and oafish. Yes. Because before the comics code loosened, you, you couldn't really show people in positions of authority as being corrupt yeah. or being untrustworthy. And uh, yeah, the uh, moving into the post Miller, post DKR Batman, it's like, or even post Year One. Yeah. It's just like because that that whole thing had to do with police corruption too, and. It just changed the whole tone and tenor of what you get from Gotham City. You know, it's just from a comic book city to just the eternally night, the eternally dark city where every around every bend someone's out there to get you. It's, you know, it, I, I mean, actually, I love the corrupt cop angle, why they, well, Commissioner Gordon coming in, what he what he's coming into. Try and clean it up. Yep. In a long-form way, that's what leads to Gotham Central, one of my uh, favorite Batman side, whatever is Bat family books. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's this depiction of, of every aspect of the city being ruined, and you know what I mean? Like, yep. it's, like, there's not one good cop on the force, there's not one piece of infrastructure that isn't, like, about to crumble, you know what I mean? There's not one bank that isn't ripe for the for the uh, robbing, unless sure, unless sure. Batman shows up, and uh, that's that's definitely <laughs> a post-crisis thing. This, uh, this story reminds me totally also of, <clears throat> sorry, we covered uh, that story, The Silent Night, what is that, what is the full title for the Christmas episode 2017? Oh, but... Uh, That's right. The uh, it's wanted Santa Claus dead or alive? Is, no, is that what it is, or is it? A, it's oh, the old, where they're yes, singing, the, they're singing the Neil carols. Adams singing. Yes. Yeah, and it's like, uh, yeah, Commissioner Gordon just keeps convincing Batman to stay and sing more carols with them. Mm-hmm. And around the city, there's no crime. That's why he's Nothing. not needed yep. that one night. Uh, it's you know tonally similar, where it's like uh, for sure, it's it's an interesting thing. And and I, I'll be honest, I wouldn't mind seeing more stories like that. 
in Absolutely. modern comics of like, you know, Batman doesn't always have to be rescuing Gotham and he doesn't City, have to fall against yeah. magma, you know. <laughs> and he doesn't always have to be the the infallible bat god. Yeah, you know, that... he doesn't have to always be the smartest dude in the room. He doesn't have to always be, you know, the one that everyone turns to all the time, just... or the one correcting everybody all the time. That's what it, that's really what it comes down to, isn't it? You know, where it's just basically it just guys getting to be like, I don't care if you're right. You're just annoying now, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's, <laughs> it's it's like when someone just like won't stop pressing a subject, and it's like you know, it's not that you're wrong. It's just that you're a jerk. It's not, it's not what you said. People. It's how you said it. I don't like it. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, that, that that's a good one. Uh, the last one we're going to talk about. Uh, there's another one. You know, this this series is a Reggie favorite. A Swamp Thing Volume Two, Number Fifty Six, Fifty Six, January Nineteen Eighty Seven, Cover Date. This is My Blue Heaven by Alan Moore and Rick Veach. Anyone that's a fan of uh, this run of Swamp Thing and probably Swamp Thing in general knows this issue very well. Um, it's I got a semi-iconic cover, at least among Swamp Thing fans, of kind of like the, the blue Swamp Thing. Uh, I believe this is actually the first time we see that Swamp Thing can like grow out of other uh, plant forms. You know, he's on another planet. Uh, yeah. The, the way this all happened was that uh, uh, Sunderland Corporation is is a, basically becomes the the Lex Luthor to Swamp Thing. They just don't they just don't like him. They want him dead at this point. Uh, because he broke, he killed their boss. But uh, so they shoot him with a Lex Luthor designed bullet that is able to cut off his natural rhythms from the Earth's nat- natural rhythms. Essentially, from what we would come to know as the green, he can no longer go back to the green. Okay. So he effectively, they think he's dead. But what he does is he kind of his consciousness goes into space and he's able to connect with other plant life in the universe. Uh, Does he? Is this the one where he creates like his own family, sorta? This is that one. This is that issue. Okay. Uh, he lands on a planet that is like all blue fungus, and this is this is the first issue after he has left Earth. So he's mm-hmm. just coping with the fact that he may never. You know, this is it. You, you here's your life, friend. You know, you don't. You may not be getting back. Uh, so this is what he does. He creates his family. He creates his uh, uh, Abigail. You know, his his. Kind of common law wife at that point He has a bunch of friends He even recreates Huma, Louisiana completely uh, At first they can't speak And then he gets them to speak But they all have like Swamp Thing voice You can tell It's like they have his <laughs> his word his balloon gravity. But it's blue yep. Yeah, but it's all like square and scratchy And uh, But it's like for a while It, it does it for him And then <laughs> he realizes that This is not working for me This this is not correct And And instead of just Giving up Plunking down and and getting into this pseudo life, I need to figure out how to get back to Earth. I need to forge ahead somehow and figure out what I need to do to get back to Earth. And eventually, he does. There's a whole bunch of more story to it. Uh, this is similar. Isn't there a similar Green Lantern to this? Or to imagine that, where he creates constructs of his of Coast City. Well, yeah, he he did that, um, that right, right before uh, Emerald uh, Twilight. Yeah, he uh, created like, that. You can't and, and do I that. Think, Guardians I think, up. Yeah, yeah, they, they tell him to, you know, cool his jets. But I think there have been times where he's been abandoned places. Uh, they haven't been as uh, as really fleshed out as uh, the Swamp Thing story or even as Emerald Twilight. But uh, I believe there have been times where he has created 
constructs of people he knows people uh, familiar comfort and, yeah and then, and then maybe been like oh that's hot but the thing the thing about the swamp thing that I think is this makes it a really special and also it's a hilarious issue because it's about a swamp monster creating life on a distant planet you know what I mean and yep. like to assuage himself and like the very idea of it is is outlandish but throughout Alan Moore's run uh, there's let me even rewind. Really, Swamp Thing has always been a character about a, as someone trying to regain their humanity. And, sure. or, and originally, that was to reverse the bio-restorative formula effect, become human again. But when Alan Moore created in his issue 21, right? Uh, yep, the anatomy the lesson. The anatomy uh, lesson, that he was never going to be human again, it became more of a examination of what makes humanity uh, mm-hmm. And this is this is a watershed moment. You know, it's it's only after that point that that uh, after the anatomy lesson that like Swamp Thing learns about love and learns about you know true friendship. And uh, yeah. when he goes to this this other planet, he understands this. He he learns an important part of humanity is like it's not the shell. You know what I mean? The, to look at Abigail is not enough. It has to be her. Uh, it's it's very interesting because it's like he almost uh, he almost starts filling in the Maslow hierarchy of needs when yeah. he finds out he's not human at all. It's uh that's that's really cool because it's such a subversion of what you'd imagine it would be. Yeah. Um, like you said before, like there was always that hope that he would turn back, and then in the late Bronze Age stories, there were ser- there were issues where he did change back. That's right. You know, but that, those were all you know <laughs> they were all dreamed away, but. Uh, I, I do love that once he realizes, or once it's deduced that he has no humanity in him, is when he becomes the most human and starts starts really putting the building blocks together to to fill the human needs and and whatnot. Yeah, it's it, he becomes an incredibly sympathetic character, and I think that's mm-hmm. why he's resonated with a lot of people over the years. Uh, you know, it, it. I mean, of course, there are comic book tropes. The bad guys in here are depicted as. Uniquely and unendingly bad. They don't. They don't. They don't humanize them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Coins and fork tails. Uh, right? Yeah. So it, it's it, There's a little bit of uh, shorthand, literary shorthand going on here, which you could expect. But this is a really touching issue, and to me, it also just seems a really funny issue. The idea of this blue, I don't know, fake blue people. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just me. Maybe it's my love of the Smurfs was what really there comes you go. Me to. No, uh, to get into this, <laughs> it's interesting because uh, our friend Dave Schultz. Uh, yeah. This is his favorite issue of Swamp Thing. Oh, really? I didn't realize that. And, yeah, and uh, he's actually going to be on the uh, Chris's on Infinite Earth show this week, and he's going to be telling me all about his Swamp Thing fandom, and uh, so much of it comes back to this issue. And uh, it's crazy seeing it here. I mean, this is an issue I haven't thought of in forever, and, uh, and I'm going over it this, twice in one week. This really, yeah, that's that's, that's ironic. <laughs> uh, I know, I know, he's a huge Swamp Thing fan, and it's, it's yeah. funny. Uh, I don't know if I'd say this is my favorite issue. Of that run, but it's it's way up. It's it's one that I think of right away, both mm-hmm. for like to indicate something about that entire series. You know what I mean? Because it really is. Even it's though, very representative. Yes. Even though you don't really get a lot of characters, it's not even on the planet Earth. In fact, it's really kind of a quiet issue. It really represents kind of the whole impetus of uh, more and not not all Veach, but largely Veach and who else sure, was on there? Sure. The set, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A couple of people were. Toddlebin, yeah. Toddlebin was on there exactly. So uh, all those guys, they created something. And and of course, if it wasn't clear, I recommend this run very, very <laughs> heartily. It is definitely one of my favorite things ever to happen in comics. And uh, mm-hmm. 
you know, it's it's. I think it, sometimes I def, I feel like it's Alan Moore's best work, but I know I'm biased probably about that. Huh? What do you think, baby? <laughs> <laughs> maybe a little bit. But, uh, couldn't stand up against Lost Girls, right? I don't know. Maybe not. It depends. <laughs> it, 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 what what are the grading uh, requirements? Is it, right. If nudity is a requirement, then it wouldn't fall. Although no. it does have its share of nudity, so. For mm-hmm. mature readers, right? Suggested for mature readers, folks. So don't yes. don't let your kids have these swamp things. <laughs> but uh, I think that's going to uh, wrap us up for this installment of sure. moments and comics we love. I really I really enjoyed talking about these. Not uh, not so much mine, but yours, because because uh, <laughs> for one thing, I knew I know these scenes. So I was like, all right, awesome. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, these these are three. Just terrific uh, scenes, and uh, the, the Batman one especially uh, reminds me of uh, good memories. I, I think I must have read that comic specifically, mm-hmm. but I do have it in one of my uh, many five billion Batman trade collections I'm that sure, exists in yeah. the world. Because uh, yeah, I think it's the only Harlan Harlan Ellison uh, detective comics issue. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, because I I actually just read a piece by him that. Uh, Introduced a, a wizard special on Zero Hour that, and Harlan Ellison wrote like a two-page introduction, which makes almost no sense. Uh-huh. But he does mention that he has one writing credit in Detective Comics, and we can assume it's this one. Didn't he invent Clayface Three in Detective I, Comics? Maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't think that was him. Yeah. Oh, yeah maybe not. All right. Uh, all right. Well. That's uh, that'll do it. Sorry, I just got, of course, a message as soon as I looked at that. Um, but I think that'll do it for us for this episode of Comics Talk. Everyone, of course, thank you all for your support, and we want to hear your favorite comics moments. So certainly, let us know Weird Comics History at Gmail on Twitter, Facebook, mm-hmm. Patreon, whatever you like. You can hit us Everywhere. up. Everywhere. Uh, let us know. Maybe if we get a bunch, we'll talk about. Your favorite moments as well. Next time we do this, sure. Yeah, maybe we'll, you'll introduce us to ones we've never even seen yet. So that, that would be good. That could be a lot of fun. Yeah. So uh, thanks, everyone. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the month, which is only hours left. <laughs> and uh, we'll be talking to you soon. See ya. Bye. 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 Bye.